All right, good evening. Great to see everybody. Let me begin with just a quick observation that I know is true here like it is everyone else, everywhere else. There are many of you who are here right now and you didn't get dinner tonight, did you? All right? And some of you that had dinner, you ate it so fast, you don't even know what it tasted like, all right? And some of you on the way to church are like, you're wearing that? You can't wear that. What are you doing over there? Oh, I said, get over there. Sit down. And then some of you, if you're like me when I was growing up as a kid, my mom would always give us a thumb bath with a Kleenex you know, for the back of the seat. Whatever has gone on in the past few minutes, you're here. And that says a lot for you and your faith and your family. And God bless you. God bless you for making this a part of your week. All right, I hope you have the Heavenly Library with you. I want you to take down the book of Genesis and go to chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to get to a story that is probably very familiar to many of you here tonight in just a moment. But before we do, I want to begin with a question, all right? A question. How would you expect Someone to live their life if they knew God was right there with them. Have you got that? How would you expect someone to live their life if they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, no matter what was going on in their life, that their heavenly Father was right there with them? How would you expect them to handle temptation? How would you expect them to handle financial prosperity? Or financial poverty? If they knew their father was right there with them. How would you expect them to handle some of the great, great challenges of life that even go far beyond finances that come to our health or come to our family challenges or maybe come to great loss? If they knew, if they knew and they believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that their God was right there with them, how would you expect them to handle it? You kind of got that in your mind? Kind of understand what you would expect from them. How would you expect them to respond? How would you expect them to handle it if they knew? Have you got that? Have you got that? Kind of thinking about it. All right, I want to tweak that question just a little. How would you expect someone to live their life? Knowing God was right there with them. And they have your life. Your temptations. Your struggles. Your challenges. That question... That question is something that resonates over and over and over again in the life of the character that I want us to talk about tonight. His name is Joseph. And Joseph, Joseph was not the oldest, and he was not exactly the youngest in his family, but he was the, the 11th of 12 brothers, and his life was a roller coaster of a life. He would experience some of the greatest lows and some of the greatest highs, and this was his life for all that his years were upon the earth. Now, being the 11th of 12 brothers, can you imagine what 
what dinner time was like around that place when everybody sits down at the table. Uh, anybody here have to hold hands when you're at the dinner table? We started that in our family to keep everybody's hands from out of the food, you know? So you're all holding hands, wait on dad, wait on dad, and boom, can you imagine? 11 of 12 brothers. But what if your brothers are all older than you? And they just see you as a punk. Now, some of you can probably identify with that. Right? And your brothers are far from moral. I tell you, have you ever gone back and just not just studied Joseph, but studied his brothers? That was a sorry, pathetic, wicked group of men. And your dad sends you out to check on them. Oh, that's great. That's great. And you're wearing this big shiny coat that dad had just made for you. And he, he made it in the color of the rainbow so you stick out to the whole world. I mean, he was the first unicorn, you know. He really was. I mean, he was out there. Here comes Joseph, and he's parading in his jacket. and He's supposed to give a report back to dad. And he pretty much gives a tattletale report. I mean, I'm not sure how you look at it. I'm not one to be hard on Joseph. He was doing what he was told, but in essence, he tattletailed to some degree. And For those of you that are older siblings and you have a younger sibling and they tattletale on you, what are you supposed to do to them? What? What do you do? What do you do? Maybe you have an annoying younger brother or sister. Maybe you got one of those. What do you do when they annoy you? You kill them. It's in the Bible. It's right. It's, it's in the Bible. That's exactly what they decide to do. I, I want you to look at this. Let's just start right here. Let's start in Genesis chapter 37. And, and, and we're going to skip ahead in the story just a little bit, all right? What we know about Joseph is that Joseph is the favorite son. What we also know about Joseph is that obviously he's a favorite by the father because he's been given these visions and, and he's sharing these visions and these dreams with his brothers. And they're not exactly the kind of dreams you need to be sharing with brothers who are well, as wicked as these guys that, you know, the whole point is they're going to be bowing down to him. That's not where you need to go with a situation like this, but he does anyhow. And so what you find when you get into the story is that you find now the brothers are fed up. They're done. They're done with the tattletale. They're done with the coats. They're done with the dreams. They are Done. Verse 23, Genesis 37. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of colors that he wore. Now let's just stop right here and kind of keep this in mind. I don't know what season this was, but something tells me Joseph is like the senior in high school that wears his letter jacket every day of the year. Right? 100 degrees outside, he's in his leather jacket. He's got to show it off. And here he is wearing it to go out to his brothers again. They strip it of him, away from him. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. Some of your Bibles will say cistern. Why? Because there was no water in it. And then notice what they do next. Probably one of the most callous things you'll ever see. They sat down and ate. Now, why was that so callous? What's interesting is later when Joseph is talking about this story and he's sharing it with others, 
he admits that he was crying in that pit. He knew what his brothers were up to. And fearful for his life, fearful beyond imagination, he's crying and probably begging for mercy. And what do they do while their brother's crying? They sit down and eat. They sit down and eat. Now, it just so happens, though, that a couple of the brothers kind of get a conscience, especially the oldest one, and got to thinking to himself, you know, if we just kill him, you know, what profit of that is to us? Well, why don't we sell him? And so then, then the plan starts, well, let's just sell him, and let's make a little money off of him. In fact, it was Judah himself who comes up with the idea, well, let's cash in on this guy. Why just kill him? We can sell him. Think about it. I, I mentioned to you yesterday, I had a younger brother. I couldn't call him a little brother, unfortunately, but I had a younger brother. We fought all the time as kids. And while I'll have to confess, there were times that I wished he wasn't there. To sell him? To sell him and put money in your pocket? Just happens that a band of Ishmaelites are going by, gypsies, if you will, in that modern day, and hey, let's sell him. And they sold him. It, it, it's kind of one of those stories that you've always studied as a kid and you and you know the story, but but to really think about it, they sold their brother into slavery. I, I don't know if you know anything about biblical times when it comes to slavery, but that once you were a slave in that kind of a situation, you were sold as a slave, you, you really didn't get out of that very easily. There, there were some kinds of slavery because you owed somebody money. And in that day and age, it wasn't like today where, where you can work out a deal or, or maybe even file a chapter uh, 13 or chapter 11 or you would file some formula. You, know, you could declare bankruptcy. and we're, no, 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 Not in that day and age. You, you, if you didn't owe somebody money, then you became their slave and you worked it off. But once you worked it off, you were free. There, there wasn't that option here. And then they take that coat and they dip it in blood, the blood of a goat, and they take it back to dad and they go, really? And so if they weren't callous before as their brother's crying in a pit, now that their dad is crying in front of them, they're going, that's too bad. He's gone. Sorry, dad. I don't know if you've ever given this a lot of thought. But how in the world is God with somebody if this happens to them? Would God allow someone who is in a loving, 
wealthy family to lose that family? Would God allow someone that He really loves, that He's right there with them, would He allow them to lose their freedom and become a slave to men? If God is really with somebody, I mean right there with them, and He loves them and cares for them, would He allow their entire world to be turned upside down so that they're not only sold into slavery, they're only exiled from their family, they end up in a foreign country without a friend in the world. God is really with somebody and loves them. Would he allow them to live every moment of their life wondering if they're going to die? If they're going to die. Is God really with him? Now go to chapter 39 and I want you to notice verse 1. Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And notice verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, now in your Bible, you don't mind writing in your Bible? Just give that a little underline. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. Oh, Joseph? Joseph became a successful man? No. No. Potiphar. Potiphar became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. And from that time, he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord, catch this, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So that Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, that's kind of an interesting line there. I don't know how you exactly take that. Take that. But what, what it simply implies is Potiphar didn't have to worry about a care in the world. He didn't have to worry about anything. The only decision he had to make is, do I want to eat this or I want to eat that today? And he is now not just rich, but he's filthy rich. He's not just kind of successful. He's extremely successful. And he knows who's the source of it all. It's Joseph. So does he say, hey, Joseph, let me cut you a deal. I know you're kind of in a bad situation here that maybe you were a Hebrew at one time and you were sold into slavery. Let me cut you a deal. Why don't you work for me six months out of the year and then I'll send you home the next six months. Or I'll cut you a deal and I'm going to build you a house over here on the River Nile and I'm going to do this. No, do you do any of that for him? No. He's got a golden goose. And you keep the golden goose with you. And if you're Joseph, how do you take all this when you know everybody else is profiting because of you? Even your brothers made money off you. And now you're in a foreign land and this captain is making money off you. Well, you might think, 
There's not a lot working in my favor, but here's one thing Joseph did have in his favor. I don't know if you'll catch this. It's in the very next verse. He goes, you know, I'm really good looking. I still have that going for me. I mean, I'm a slave and everybody's making money off of me, but I look good. Well, it turns out that that blessing is also a curse as well because somebody else noticed that he was good looking. At the end of verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and he said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. In this very next line, this very next line reveals to us how Joseph viewed his relationship with God. Because he doesn't say to this woman, all right, here's the deal. If we do this, we might get caught, and that's going to end up real bad. Or, you know, there can be some consequences here, and this, you know, we don't want that. Or if, if Potiphar comes home, and this, that, and the other, you know. Or he, he, he doesn't say, he says, how can I, and notice, how can I commit this sin against God? Not against you, not against Potiphar, not against Egypt. Not because I'm scared of the consequences. But how can I commit this sin against God? Now, let's just kind of be honest for a moment. If that was you, if that was me, is that how you'd be thinking? Would there not be a part of you that's going, hmm, all right, let's see, how does God work? Well, God works when he's with you, he abandons you. That's how he works. When God is right there with you and you commit yourself to his ways and you commit yourself to his truths, and bear in mind, bear in mind, there isn't one verse in Scripture that ever points out any indiscretion, if you will, in the life of Joseph. Now, you can waffle on that tattletale thing. I'm not one that really assumes that that was bad. But there is not one verse in Scripture that shows us that Joseph committed a sin. Now, you can go back to his grandfather and go back in his history to his great-grandfather. You can Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were not perfect men by any stretch of the imagination. But Joseph is really a good guy. And when there be a part of you that's going, hmm, hmm. So if God's right there with you, all these things happen, I would have to be honest with you. I'd probably be thinking to myself, all right, God, I appreciate you being with me, but if this is kind of how it works, do me a favor, go be with my brothers for a little bit. They need this kind of attention if this is how it works out. Because I'm willing to see how you're with me here. I'm willing to see where this faith thing goes. Anybody know what happens with the Potiphar wife scenario? You probably remember that, don't you? Potiphar comes home and Joseph ends up in the same place he would have been if he'd have just done it. 
Mrs. Potiphar gets all upset. Now, have you ever thought about Mrs. Potiphar? Can I just share this to the guys, all the young guys here? If you're a captain in the royal army and you are extremely wealthy, anybody want to guess what Miss Potiphar probably looked like? She's smoking hot. It doesn't exactly say that in the Hebrew. But something tells me it wasn't like Joseph was going, <laughs> are you crazy? <laughs> no, it was a temptation. And how old is he? He's 17 years old. Are there any consequences? No, nope, nobody's going to catch him from back home. And so day after day, he says no. Day after day, he says no. And eventually, she gets a little bent out of shape about it. And she goes to Potiphar and says, hey, you know what he was trying to do to me? And then Potiphar takes Joseph and throws him in jail. Follow along in the story, if you would, with me. And I want you to notice verse 21. Now he's in jail. Verse 21, notice what the text says. But the Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's the exact same scenario. Who's succeeding now? Joseph? Is Joseph going, yes! Oh, I'm the most successful inmate in the history of Egypt. No. The jailer. In fact, the jailer's life becomes so easy. He just puts Joseph in charge of everything because Joseph is a man of such outstanding character, as a man who has unbelievable morals, and he's a man who is diligent in service, even in prison. He just can kick back and let Joseph take care of everything. And it all goes well because the Lord is with Joseph. What's interesting, a little bit later, and you probably remember this from Bible stories as a kid, in chapter 40, uh, there's going to be a baker and a steward who are both going to have dreams. And so uh, Joseph is the guy. Joseph is the guy. Hey, yeah, I, I, I can probably figure that out there for you. I'm kind of a dream guy. I know how do these things work. And so he answers the dreams for him. Works out real good for the steward, not so much for the baker. And he tells the cupbearer, the steward, remember me when you get out. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You are my buddy. Oh, yeah. Let me give you a big hug. Joseph, you're the man. You're the man. You're the man. And he gets out of jail. And what does he do? Forgets him. And there's Joseph going. There's Joseph wondering, what? Forgotten. Again, anybody seeing a pattern here? Joseph does the right thing for his father. It gets him into slavery. He does the right thing for Potiphar. He ends up in prison. He does the right thing in prison. He ends up in prison longer. And yet what the text says over and over and over again is that the Lord was with him. 
At every turn, at every opportunity, Joseph has. Joseph has a reason to blame God. At every opportunity, he has a reason to disobey God and choose another path. At every opportunity, he has a reason. And if you go back and you look at his life, he never, ever, ever acts on any of those reasons. There's a psalm that I think you all know. Have you all ever heard of Psalm 23? Remember Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because I have the great job and, man, I'm making all kinds of money. Oh, that's fine. I'll change it up. Uh, Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because my family, everybody just gets along and we have no dysfunction or crazy members. No? No. Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. I want you to see and understand that what you see in the life of Joseph is a man who understands, first of all, the first rule of the spiritual road. I'm accountable for all of my actions. It doesn't matter what my dad has done. It doesn't matter what my brothers have done. It doesn't matter what Potiphar's wife or Potiphar has done. It doesn't matter what the jailer or anybody else has done. I am accountable for me. And what you see also in Joseph, and Joseph is going to take it to another level, is that Joseph is going to say, yes, Not only am I accountable for me, but I'm going to fear God. I'm going to fear God. And what you see when you go to the life of Joseph, and this is where it really gets rich, go to chapter 41. I want you to see something in the text that may have actually just kind of snuck by your radar. In chapter 41, you're going to see that he's finally remembered by that steward. This time it's Pharaoh who has the dreams. You remember your Bible story? It is Pharaoh who's having these dreams about, what is it, these grains and this, that, and the other, and stocks and whatever else. What's going to happen? And he's all confused, and he goes to, to all of his men of wisdom. He goes all to his magicians. They can't figure it out. And then the steward goes, oh, 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 I know a guy. I know a guy. Oh, this is going to be so great. And they go and get Joseph. And Joseph is brought out of the prison. And now here he is. Here he is before the man who controls everything. Before the man who can finally give him some justice. Before the man who can finally make everything right in his life. And yet listen to what Joseph does when he speaks to Pharaoh. In chapter 41 and in verse 16, Joseph answered Pharaoh, It's not in me. Wait, 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 wait. I heard, I heard you were a dream interpreter. I heard that you were the guy. And Joseph comes straight out and goes, It's not me. It's not me. I can't help you. But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Listen to that. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Go to verse 25. Notice what Joseph says this time. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I know you've had a lot of dreams here, but the dreams are one. God 
has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Now, did anybody catch what Joseph's doing there? Did anybody catch something? Did you catch anything about his terminology? Let me help you out here a little bit. Does anybody know why there were ten plagues when Moses went to release the people from bondage? You would kind of think, you know, I'm thinking just water turning to blood. That would be pretty good. A good darkness, you know, locust. You may hear locust fan. Can you imagine? Yeah. Boils. That's good. We're out. We're done. And if you're God, doesn't that get it? I mean, how many do you really need? Why 10? Does anybody know why there were 10? Because there were 10 prominent Egyptian gods that they believed in. What we're talking about here is a polytheistic society that believed in multiple gods. Not one god, but multiple gods. And notice what Joseph is doing as he stands before a king who is polytheistic and believes in multiple gods. Joseph keeps saying, there's one god. There's one God. In fact, Joseph, in fact, Pharaoh, not all your dreams are many. There's one. There's one. I mean, if you're a guy who's trying to finally get some good luck in your life and make things right, is this really the most diplomatic way of going about it? Joseph, what are you doing here, man? This is your chance. But Joseph wants it very clear in the highest court of the land in the land that controls his physical future, I believe in one God. And that one God is with me, and he's the Lord. Anybody notice something interesting about the word Lord every time it was in your Bible there? Anybody notice anything about the, the type? What, what is it? Notice it's in all caps. Does anybody know what that means? Yeah, it's the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. And what you see in the life of Joseph, he doesn't just believe in God. His God is personal. His God has a name. Yahweh. And he is right here with me. What's amazing is even a little bit later in chapter 42 and in verse 18, after Joseph has helped Egypt get through those years of famine and now they've got all this food and everybody from around the world is coming to them to get food and here come his brothers groveling. Oh, this is his chance. Don't you know that was a great day when Joseph is going, yeah. And they can't recognize him. I don't know why. I don't know if he had all the eye makeup, if he had the king thing, or if he walked around like this. I don't know. They ain't, they ain't, they ain't caught on that this is Joseph. It's been a few years. I mean, this is the perfect scenario. And notice what Joseph says to his brothers. He still hadn't revealed himself. And it says on the third day, this is verse 18 of chapter 42. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. I fear 
God. Fear is actually an interesting word study when you look at it in Scripture. It suggests the idea at times of certainly just being afraid. It can also imply being morally reverent. And it can certainly imply terror. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus said very clearly, don't fear man, don't fear the one who can destroy the body. You don't fear. If somebody can kill you, so what? You fear the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. You have a healthy respect for the Lord. And what you see with that kind of fear, and what we see when we look at that in Scripture, is that that fear carries with it great blessings. We're talking about the rules of the spiritual road. And I want you to understand very clearly that this rule, this rule of fearing God and keeping His commandments is a rule that leads to great spiritual prosperity. And here's what Scripture tells us about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Just think of what you know because you trust and you listen to the wisdom of God. The truths. The absolutes, the understanding of not just life before you, but more importantly, life after you. It it, it is a fear that will lead you to hate evil. And not just someone who sees it and goes, ah, it's kind of bad. You, You have such a fear of the Lord, you eventually grow in your faith that you hate it and run from it as much as you can. Just like you see in Joseph, he hated it and he ran from it as far as he could. It's, it's, it's something that leads to a long life, says Proverbs 10, 27. It gives you confidence. Now, that's kind of interesting when you think about it. Is it an oxymoron that I live in fear and, and maybe trepidation before God or remorse before God and this makes me confident? Yes. Yes. If you go back and you look at Joseph, at what point in his life was he going, ah, I'm not so sure. Ah, I don't know how I'm going to handle that. No, I'm not. No. He had such a healthy fear and understanding in his relationship with the Lord that, that he, he, always, he always walked with confidence, even when he's crying in the pit, even when he's in despair in the house of slavery, even when he's in prison. He still approaches each day with the confidence of a person who believes in the Lord. It provides an escape from evil. Proverbs 16, 6, it provides satisfaction. And as Proverbs 22, 4 tells us, it is the fear of the Lord that brings riches and honor and life. Fear. Anybody here afraid? Well, you should be raising your hand. We're all afraid. We're all afraid. The athlete why does the athlete practice so hard? It's a fear of losing. <laughs> I hate losing. Why do our wives make us get up three or four times in the middle of the night to check doors or windows or even locks that we don't even have? It's a fear. It's a security of somebody coming in. Well, why do mothers, why do mothers especially you know, just, just drive you crazy, kids? All this. Because they fear for your safety. There were three things in our family growing up that would always get you a spanking. Three things. Number one, haughty eyes, any act of rebellion, you're dead. Number two, you lie to me. 
Number three, you don't hold on to my hand in a parking lot. <laughs> that lasted for my kids till they were 20. Give me my hands. You're right here with me. Why do we do that? It's a fear of losing. We're all fearful of something. But when our fears get out of whack, bad things can happen. A friend of mine, it was many years ago, this happened back when Cheryl and I lived in Alabama. There's a guy at church that, well, you know, he was, he was in his 30s and he was single and he, he was just yeah, he was just feeling a little, you know, he's like, oh, Phil, I'm just never going to get married. Ah, oh, dude, be careful, be careful. You're good. You're fine. You're fine. Just relax. God will take care. Oh, I don't know. Ah, just fine. Just fine. I remember we were always kind of these conversations all the time, so I'm always trying to pick him up, keep him positive. But I'll never forget the day he came into church one Sunday. He had a little kick in his step. And I'm like, whoa, dude, how you doing? Oh, yeah, man, I got me a girlfriend. I was like, yeah, stud. I said, when are we going to get to meet her? He goes, oh, it'll happen. It'll happen. You know, a couple of weeks went by, you know, he still got that, hey, when are we going to get to meet her? Oh, she'll come, she'll come eventually, you know, she's not really a Christian, that's okay, that's okay. And he goes, well, I think, you know, just give it some time, give it some time. A few weeks later, it's like, yeah, when are we going to get to meet her? Y'all getting kind of serious? Yeah, I know, I know, but you know, she's not really a Christian. And I said, but dude, I'm a preacher, I fix those things, bring her. <laughs> well, after a while, I began to realize she wasn't just an unbeliever. She was an unbeliever. She really didn't believe in God. I was like, Mark, dude, come on. You got to give this some thought, man. This is not headed anywhere good at all. He goes, don't worry, don't worry. I got this. I said, are you going to get married? Yeah. I said, you really need to slow down. Oh, Phil, the clock's ticking. Dude. They got married. And he was there for a couple of Sundays. She came with him one time. Anybody want to guess what happened? His fear of being alone in his eyes was greater than his fear of the Lord. And when the fear is not where it should be, bad things can happen. What's interesting is that God's Word shares this with us without the fear of the Lord. Well, first of all, if, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, is the beginning of understanding and wisdom, well, without the fear of the Lord, we're sacrificing a lot of understanding. It's the fear of the Lord that leads somebody to wonder, I don't know how I got here and I don't know where I'm going. It's the fear of the Lord, once it is absent from somebody's lives, leaves somebody with a void of understanding, well, what is right and what is wrong? Think of the lack of the knowledge that goes on in the heart of somebody who doesn't fear God. Well, they're going to be corrupted. And what's interesting, they're going to be corrupted by evil, but they're going to think the evil is good. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? 
Just, just consider some of the things that are actually justified in just the world that we live in. And, and, and we're supposed to be a religious nation. And, and, and we call this good. Well, Scripture warns us, without the fear of the Lord, we'll be corrupted by evil. Well, what else? We're going to reap what we sow. And we're not going to like it. There's, there, there's a Proverbs, Proverbs 13, 15. Remember this one. Please remember this one. Proverbs 13, 15. It's really short and simple. It's an easy one to memorize. The way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. As hard as Joseph's life was, it was a lot worse for his brothers. They were free but bound. They were rich but really poor. The way of the transgressor is hard. And, and, and you know what happens when we lose a fear of the Lord and a healthy respect for the Lord? We forfeit God's love. Peace is only found, as Peter says, in the knowledge and the understanding of the Lord. And, and, and then there's this passage. This is Psalms 103. In, in Psalms 103 and in verses 17 and 18, the psalmist reminds us that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and keep His commandments. Do, do, do you hear do you hear what our Lord is telling us? To the one who fears me and keeps my commandments, they are the ones that I've bundled up in my arms and I carry them all the way from everlasting to everlasting. There wasn't a moment in Joseph's life that the Lord did not know exactly what was going on. And there wasn't a moment in his life that the Lord didn't have him by the hand. And there wasn't a moment in his life that Joseph was even going to remotely forfeit that relationship. What happens if we don't have a fear of the Lord? We'll never repent and turn back to him. I believe I believe that it's very healthy for us to have such a fear of the Lord that we do get scared at times and wake up with a good sweat. I can remember the day that I finally decided I wanted to become a Christian. Actually, it happened a few days earlier, a week earlier. I was getting ready to go forward at church, and I don't know why in my mind I thought I had to do it in an assembly, and I was getting ready to go forward. And I said, oh, i got to do this, i got to do this, man. Oh, i got to do this. And right before I stepped out, my buddy stepped out. And I'm like, dude! Duh! And then I'm thinking, oh, I can't go now. No, man, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and you had to go. i got to wait. It was the longest week of my life. And I'm battling 
And I still don't know why I thought I had to do it on a Sunday, but I did. And my dad was preaching that Sunday. And I'll never forget, it was the first time I've ever got in the car and I took the middle seat. I need all the buffer we can get. I need my seatbelt on and dad, take it easy all the way there. And I remember thinking, I don't need a heart attack. I'm only 13. I don't need a heart attack. You know what, folks? I think, I think we've lost that. I'm all for an understanding that our God is a loving God, a compassionate God. But there's a time in our life that we need to know He is a fearful God. Because He controls our destiny. And if that's what we need to be motivated to move closer to Him... Get it. Take it. Share it. Because if we don't have a fear of the Lord, we won't be saved. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2? Work out your own salvation. How? With fear and trembling. He's not saying the Christian should go through his life like this, but the Christian goes through his life with a healthy respect of knowing that no matter what's going on, no matter what the temptation, no matter what the challenge, no matter what the struggle, my God is right there with me. And I'm going to cling to Him. And what you see in the life of Joseph is someone who is always clinging to the Lord. And one day, Every single one of us are going to bow down to God out of fear. It'll either be a fear of reverence and adoration and love. Or it'll be a fear of terror. Because we know. We know we never walked with him like we should. So what's my take home? Well, just real quick, I want you to see that fearing God is our purpose. In fact, that's exactly how Solomon says it in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The whole duty of man, what is everything about being a man? Here it is, says Solomon. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's it. <laughs> if you ask Solomon to preach one sermon, he said, that's it. Fear God, keeping his commands. Any questions? All right, let's go home. That's it. That's your purpose. It's my practice. In fact, what's interesting is you go and you look at the first century church. What do you read about them in Acts 9? They were walking in the fear of the Lord. It was the fear of the Lord that led them to evangelism, that led them to service, that led them to be lights to the world. And then you'll notice that it's my peace. Go back and look at one more passage from the life of Joseph. This is at the very end in Genesis chapter 50. His father has passed away. The whole family had moved and were living in the land of Goshen. They were enjoying all of his faithfulness to the Lord. And they're all successful now because of Joseph. There it is again. Everybody else is successful because of him. But now dad has passed away and all the brothers are going, uh-oh, he's going to get us now. Uh-oh, this is the time. Notice what Joseph says. Man, this is powerful. Genesis 50 Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. Don't fear me. Don't fear a man. Even a man that you betrayed and sold in slavery. Don't fear me. Am I in the place of God? That's who you need to be fearing, fellas. 
Don't fear me. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good. What a perspective. The pit, the slavery, the jail, the abandonment, the pain, the anxiety. God meant it for good. In so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Second rule of the spiritual road. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Tonight. If somebody had your life, your challenges, your temptations, your money, your possessions, your family, how would you expect them to use it all? How would you expect them to deal with it all if they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was right there with them? Don't miss this. He's with you. Humble yourself. Come to Him. Acknowledge Him. Repent. Fear God. Keep His commandments. And the Lord was with Joseph. May the same be said of us. And the Lord was with me. If we can help you in any way in your walk with the Lord, why don't you come while we stand and sing?